0: traveling along this path towards Awakening. And this afternoon I'm going to talk about the next two qualities, Tranquility and Happiness. Pasadi and Sukha. So we started with Dukkha and now we're moving to Sukha. And the confidence and delight and joy that we're we've been building are all conditions for stability to develop. And so as, a, as the sort of anxiety and agitation and busy mind start to decrease, it's a condition for the next step, which is Pasadi, tranquility. And as the sort of, sometimes joy can have an energetic quality, and as this starts to Ease a little bit, that kind of bright energy of joy, the brightness stays and there's clarity there, but the mind becomes more peaceful and calm. And that's tranquility. And that makes it possible for happiness to arise. The mind is more content and at ease. And so we'll explore those two. And when we're on retreat, these four steps that are um, of joy, tranquility, happiness, and concentration really have a chance to develop when we're on a silent retreat. And this is um, what the Buddha says about this. Seeing that the five hindrances have been abandoned within, one becomes glad. Glad, one becomes enraptured. Enraptured, the body grows tranquil. And when the body is tranquil, the mind is sensitive to pleasure. Finding pleasure, one's mind becomes concentrated. So that's gradually what starts to happen as the hindrances decrease. And the word pasadi or calm um, is translated sometimes as tranquility. Pasambati, the verb, is to quieten down, to become still. So it's this quiet presence that supports wisdom. The mind is cooling, calming, and it's soothing and peaceful. It's like a healing rain cooling a hot, agitated place. It's very calming. It's as though as the Inner struggles and tensions and agitations gradually decrease as we practice here. Thought activity decreases too. And restlessness and anxiety decrease and the mind becomes more peaceful. Anger is cooled. Desire is sort of, desires lessen, they quieten down. And delusion, is dispelled, it says in the texts. So it's a very easeful place. And the peace comes from simply being, simply being, and letting all the body, mind, and heart come together as all the dispersion kind of comes together. It's very easeful. And we experience it both mentally and physically. So the body becomes still, The mind becomes quiet, and you can feel that. Sense that right now. The body becoming still, the mind becoming quiet, and that soothes out the nervous system. The parasympathetic nervous system increases, that's the calming aspect of the nervous system, and the alert adrenaline sympathetic nervous system begins to calm down so the nervous system is balanced and the mind becomes composed and tranquil and unruffled and so we can see more clearly and more easily. It's like all the waves on the lake start to settle down, the breezes still and the lake becomes... um, It reflects, we can see clearly. So there's a soft spaciousness, and even as I'm talking just connect with the sense of, felt sense of those words. Soft, spacious, effortless, still, not needing anything different. And it's, there's these four S's that I like, serene, Satisfied, safe, secure. You can feel that sense of being able to release into that space. And in that calm spaciousness, the tangles spontaneously untangle. We don't have to do anything. And some of you have reported that, seeing how things unfold on their own. It's useful to su- to talk about some of the things that support tranquility on retreat, um, because the ways that we are, not just in life but on retreat, can either increase agitation or increase tranquility, and it's the si- it's very similar to the to the way it is on, re- on in life. When we do things that we regret, it agitates the mind. If we get over busy, we, we can take the habitual multitasking and busyness into our retreat. We can sort of behave the same way. And we can get caught in any one of a number of hindrances. And mindfulness will show us what those are. Is it doubt or is it restlessness or desire or aversion that's causing Um, this disturbance, and preventing me from being calm. Sometimes what we do is we're leaning into the next moment all the time. We're anticipating, what's next? What's next? And we're already thinking about lunch, and then maybe we'll have a nap, and then, you know, we're sort of planning our day, even though there's, there's so few things that we're doing. Sometimes it's that sort of habitual thing of there's somewhere better to be than where I am now. Maybe it would be better outside. Maybe I should sit inside. I had a friend who sat a retreat where there was no schedule, and she hadn't done that before. And she said, the first few days were awful, because, shall I sit longer, or shall I walk? Maybe it would have been better if I'd walked for shorter, or I should have stayed in the hall, or I should sit outside, or I should etc. But she just, and there was always this deciding that was was very agitating, and it was really hard for her to relax until she was able to settle and feel some ease about what naturally arose to do next. So it's where I am isn't the right place that was agitating. And sometimes we can take efforting and doing into our practice. Or we're trying to fix all the time and fiddling around. And that's agitating and takes away from calm. And what can help is this sort of receptive, non-interfering, just receiving experience and not interfering and trying to do something other, I should be doing something other. It's as though um, the mind is like, often the analogy is used of a pond. And if we stir it up, then it gets really muddy and we can't see anything. We get stuck in the mud. And if we just let the mud settle and don't do anything, gradually the water becomes clearer. And often, Arjan Chah talks about the still forest pool and just that ability to reflect everything that's around because of the stillness. And we can allow things to come and go and see things. So, how do we cultivate intentionally a little more tranquility when it's not there? One of the things is we can balance the energy by adjusting the breath sometimes. Sometimes just by following the out-breath can help relax the mind. Relaxing at the end of the out-breath, allowing the out-breath to be a little longer. When we allow the out-breath to be a little longer, it activates the parasympathetic nervous system. It's calming. And we can use the word calming. In the um, Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta the Buddha talks about breathing in, aware of the mind. Breathing out, calming the mind. Or aware of the body, calming the body. So just for a moment right now, explore that. Have a sense of breathing in, calming. Breathing out, calming, and sense that what that's like. We can get a feeling for resting in presence, resting in awareness. And then have a sense of conditions arising and passing in the midst of that. That sense of calming. Sometimes it can help if there's a flood of thought just to have a, a mental stop. This is not going in a useful direction. You know, it's like you're traveling down the highway and you're about to take the exit to family conflict. <laughs> and you see that and it's just stop. <laughs> you know, continue, please continue. <laughs> Don't take that exit. Or whatever analogy is helpful to you, pause, give yourself a pause so that there's a space to have a choice about the direction the mind is going. Sometimes slower walking is helpful to allow calming or simply standing because the standing helps us come to a stop. And in our life, traffic lights are really helpful for that. They say, stop whatever we're lost in, we can pause. And we can notice sometimes that if the mind is tight and striving, if there's agitation, or if we've become quite concentrated and the energy of, of um, joy or pity is very activated, then this, we know there's some striving there, and it can help to soften, open up the space, Use perhaps whole body breathing, or use sound until the mind is calmed again. We can notice that the striving. Or if the mind's very scattered and dispersed, then sometimes it can help to just come to counting the breaths. Or to use the words bu-do in time with the breath. Bu-do simply meaning awake. Sometimes that's very helpful to bring calm. Boo, do in time with the breath, gives the mind something clear to do and it allows the calming to build. Sometimes we can intentionally incline towards calm. You can't force calm to happen, um, but we can um, incline the mind towards it have a sense of a bigger container. It's helpful. Often just outside the borders of agitation, there's actually calm, the vastness of awareness. So the mind is like an ocean or a sky. Awareness is this vastness, and all this can arise and pass without causing agitation or harm. The wanting can come and go, the desire or the aversion can come and go, and the mind remains undisturbed by it. It's calm. It can be really helpful to notice feeling tone. I was in the question and answer, I think the first evening, I mentioned the feeling tone or Vedana, and how when there's contact, there's a pleasant or unpleasant Sensation or reaction really happens that goes quickly into craving or aversion. And if we can pick that up before the reactivity builds, then there's less, then there's more calm. We can allow it to be unpleasant or allow it to be pleasant. We can allow the changing conditions to be the way they are. I've often noticed how quickly the body and mind respond to unpleasant. You know, sometimes if you go outside with, um, with a short-sleeved shirt and suddenly the wind comes up and it's cold, there's a contraction. I should have brought a shirt, <laughs> you know, or it starts raining. I should have an umbrella, or whatever it is, just these small things that we can practice with. Can we allow it just to be cold, just to be the way it actually is, and let it come and go? So it's helpful to notice the, the feeling tone of experience. And we can see that the feeling tone comes and goes. can recognize that. Loving-kindness practice helps. It helps bring in a sense of calm, safety, ease, kindness that we can release into. And some of you have experienced that the words we were using the other night, may I be held in kindness while agitation is here. It's just that bit of support, so it can pass through whatever it is. The other thing is to actually notice and recognize calm when it's there, because sometimes we miss it. It can get covered over with striving, or We can confuse calm with boredom. We're so used to having things be be active and busy all the time that we want things to be more interesting or more stimulating. And we miss the calm. It can be, oh, there are no thoughts, nothing is happening. Must be something wrong, what should be happening next? And we reach to fill the space in. That was a moment of calm. Can we relax into it, allow it, see what happens to it? One of our colleagues, Christina Feldman, says, Neutral without the aversion is calm. So boredom without the aversion is actually calm. So we want to be present for the moments of calm, appreciate them value them, really sense into them. The more familiar we get, the easier it is to connect with calm. And we can go also, we can go into nature and really sense the calm that's there. Sometimes standing and looking at the trees or if you're by water or lake, it really can take in the calm that's there, the support of the earth. The simplicity of nature, and there are in those of you who've done um, mindfulness-based stress reduction are familiar with the mountain meditation and the lake meditation. These images of nature, where, for example, the mountain embodies stillness, and you think of a beautiful mountain, and you imagine your body as the mountain, just And then, whatever the weather, the mountain just sits. Whether it's raining or cold or however it is, the mountain just sits. Whether people like it or not, it just sits. And in the same way with the lake, you sense your body as the lake. And you sense the deep stillness that's at the bottom of the lake. However it is, whether the wind ruffles the surface you can still connect with that deep inner stillness. So for some people those images that from nature really help connect with the inner stillness, whether it's the ocean or the sky, some way of connecting with that. And calming is not a doing, it's an invitation. Sometimes in our practice, At the beginning of a sit, may the body relax now and notice what the response is. May the body release now. May the mind be calm now and notice what the response is. Maybe it'll continue being agitated and then maybe you'll be calm about being agitated rather than be agitated about the agitation. So letting it be like that. Sometimes tranquility can be conditional. It's easy to be calm when things are going well, um, and when they're pleasant and going our way. There's a lovely story in the, from the suttas of a slave girl, Kali, and she has a mistress Lady Vedehika, who um, is well-known for being kind and calm and gentle and everybody. How gentle Mistress Vedehika is. And Kali thinks to herself, well, I do everything for her. She doesn't have to do anything. You know, the house is always clean, the food is always prepared. You know, everything's beautiful for her. How about if I were to not make everything so nice? Would she still be gentle and calm and kind?" And so she does an experiment. She doesn't get up one morning and prepare breakfast. And so, sort of little by little, this goes for several days, Mistress Vedahika gets more and more (laughs) agitated. And she yells at Kali. And finally, in the end, she hits Kali over the head. Kali runs, running from the house, and see how kind the mistress Vedahika is. She's got blood pouring from her head. And you know, after sort of reading that sutta, I felt kind of sorry for Mistress Vedahika. <laughs> but on the other hand, she could have said to Kali, what's happening for you? <laughs> what's going on? But it's that if we can only be calm and kind when everything's going well, it's conditional. How calm can we be when things are really difficult in changing and complex conditions? And that's the kind of tranquility and calm that the Buddha was teaching about, to be able to find that, to not have this conditional calm. And um, In secular mindfulness practice, We're really teaching stress reduction, teaching ourselves to be calm. But sometimes that kind of calm can be conditional. And I know I used to get asked to um, give stress reduction sessions to certain um, work situations or um, companies. And I would really want to be careful about what their goal was. Was their goal to have me make their employees calm and satisfied in toxic situations? (laughs) Or was it to be able to see wisely and skillfully how to work with things? Um, And so what the Buddha was pointing to was a deeper freedom, a freedom that we're able to really see what are the causes of stress. What are the conditions that lead to it, and what are the conditions that lead to freedom from that? It's, it's normal to want relief from agitation, and having the calm is wonderful, as long as it's leading us to a deeper freedom, and we're not just stopping there. Because we can get attached to the calm, tranquil places, and want to just stop there. However, The calmer we are, the easier it is to see clearly. And the easier it is to see clearly, the calmer we are. So the two things feed each other. And as we begin to see more clearly, we see more clearly into our habitual patterns of reactivity. And people have talked about that on the retreat. How, wow, I'm seeing how am I on re- how I am on retreat is just how I am in life. These are the patterns that get me hooked, and now I see really clearly how they work, how they get put together. And so as Gil was talking about, these things bubble to the surface, deeper and deeper ones. And as we clear off a little bit of the light that he was talking about, we see deeper layers, and it can become brighter. And the calmer we are, the more able we are to see the really deeper, more difficult ones. We we have the calm to be able to have the honesty to see deeper. And it enables these deeper issues to get metabolized. And compassion begins to arise naturally. And with this compassionate awareness comes forgiveness. And we're able to see, as we've both been saying, with honesty and with kindness, all these difficult patterns. And we can see that they're not me or mine, they're just arising out of conditions. And we can see more clearly what conditions to avoid creating. I found it useful in my practice to use calm as a way of, of entering the practice, even. I was going on a long, month-long self-retreat once, and I called my teacher ahead of time, and I said, you know, um, um, give me some ideas about options of ways of practicing to go into the rest- this retreat. And he'd just done a self-retreat himself, and he said, why don't you try using calm? And I called on the phone, this was pre-cell phone days, <laughs> so I was calling from f- long distance on the phone. And as I was listening and holding the phone, I could feel myself, oh, this feels really nice, calm, this is what I'll do. And it was very helpful, and I be- on the retreat I became increasingly calm and increasingly content. But I also became increasingly sleepy. I was so peaceful and so calm, and it felt so nice and cozy that pretty soon it was mmm, and I was gone. In every single sit I was falling asleep, even when I wasn't tired. So I remembered the factors of awakening that some of you are familiar with, and I thought, Aha! The last three factors, which are calm, concentration, and equanimity, calm has gotten too strong. I need a little more investigation. And so we need to balance our calm and notice what's happening. I needed a little more mindfulness and a little more investigation to bring energy in to balance the calm. And so that was helpful, just to rebalance, to notice what was happening. So these are the seven uh, things that nourish tranquility that the Buddha listed using superior food, living in a good climate, maintaining a pleasant posture, keeping to the middle, avoiding violent persons, cultivating people around you who are tranquil, it's associating with calm people, and resoluteness upon tranquility. So it's helpful sometimes when you're feeling agitated, or don't have any calm, to open your eyes and look around you at the stillness in the room. And you can just be nourished by what, it may be that inside someone else's head it isn't calm, but their posture is. (laughs) And so you can sense that calmness around you and be fed and reassured by that. And when the mind is calm and clear, ordinary things begin to seem wonderful. We begin to feel the preciousness of life, and things appear, um, simple things appear beautiful. This moment becomes enough, just this moment, and we're not so much needing for things to be different. There's a deep appreciation of moment by moment. Just this moment is okay, and mind settles more and more, and it starts releasing this reaching for better moments. And that's such a relief. It's not reaching for some um, transcendent experience. This simple moment is enough. And as that happens, it settles even deeper and there's this sweet happiness that comes from the moment being enough. And that's the next quality, happiness or sukha, the pleasure. And it evolves naturally from joy and from tranquility, and it has a soft sweetness, gentleness, that is very soothing. And there's a smooth um, calmness to the happiness, a contentment, and an ease. And for those people who've experienced that kind of Excitement that joy can have, those of you who've done longer retreats where they have joy, the word for joy is piti, where it's kind of um, agitated and excited. This is just a a very easeful happiness. And the analogy in in the suttas that the Buddha used was that the joy is like seeing in a distance this beautiful, calm, peaceful, cool lake. And you're hungry and thirsty and tired, and you see this beautiful lake at the, from the top of the hill, and you just feel so much joy. Ah, there's my destination. I know when I get there, I can. It'll. I can. I'll be st- relieved. But there's a joy at seeing that, and the happiness comes when you've reached the lake, you've bathed, you've had a drink, and you're, now you're lying in the shade, and you just feel really content not wanting or needing anything. So that's the analogy, that ease that comes. Sometimes people say, well, what's, what do you, why is there a difference between joy and happiness? What, what is that about? And that analogy is a little bit, helps a little bit to see it. And also, um, there's always, joy always contains happiness. But happiness can arise in the absence, that kind of contentment can arise in the absence of joy, in the absence of delight, just this contentment in simply being. And we'll explore that a little more. As the mind and body get more infused with this tranquility or sense of calm, the contentment grows and this um, ease continues and it really, um, really supports our practice and helps us continue to settle deeper and deeper. So we all want happiness. We all want not to suffer and to avoid discomfort and unpleasantness. And the wanting to be happy is In of itself, not a problem. It's a normal thing. The problem is that we look in the wrong places and in the wrong, often, the wrong ways. Not so much wrong, but ineffective. Wrong isn't the right word. It's more the ineffective ways, ways that don't work. Um, We limit it often to just sense pleasure sources of happiness or achievement sources of happiness. And those are always changing. They always change. Um, And we get confused about what will bring happiness. It's not lasting. And um, the societal messages have really strong conditioning. And we're so bombarded with that. We just have to, we are bombarded with commercials and media uh, and often it's fast cars, or, or shampoo, or <laughs> some kind of external thing that is guaranteed to bring happiness, to acquire, <coughs> to get more, to have more, to be more. That acquiring will bring happiness. And it brings so much suffering in our culture and in our world, this having to acquire and have more than, and be more than. So much suffering when we think it will bring happiness, and so the Buddha talks about the um, the sources of happiness of well, the sense pleasure that brings this kind of happiness, and it's not bad or immoral. It's just not effective because the sense ple- the sense doors are always changing, and it. We, we can pursue pleasant to avoid unpleasant. So maybe there's an unpleasant work situation, or family situation, or life situation of some sort, and, we, and we, we're shopping, or eating, or drinking, or texting, or some form of trying to find pleasant somewhere else, but the underlying situation isn't changing, and that's never going to work. Um, and the dis-ease will continue. And we get caught in these dopamine highs. And many of you know that it's not so much when we get the thing that we've been looking for. When we actually get the thing that we've been planning to buy or eat or whatever it is, the dopamine drops. It's the anticipation. (laughs) So as soon as we've got it, then we want the next one. So as soon as you've finished whatever it is, the dopamine is depleted and we want the next one. And so then we go seeking it so that the dopamine is up again. And so we get caught in that biological cycle. And then there's personal achievement. Um, When I get this job or when I find this particular situation or when I, whatever it is, it's that next thing that we're trying to achieve. And as soon as or, or for, when, th- when I've given this talk, then everything will be all right. But, but oh no, then I have to write another one. <laughs> or think of another one. Or whatever it is that's, that, that's our particular um, thing that we're, we're caught in. And so the, as long as the ego gets involved, we can take that into practice, too. We can get caught in, um, in chasing beautiful states of mind or peaceful states of mind. And then we, that finally that happens. We're able to be with the breath for a certain length of time. Aren't I great? Now my practice is great. But then the next sit, it's not like that. Now my practice is terrible. And so there's this sort of yo-yo of gain and loss and fame and so forth the eight worldly winds they're called and so that's that's really painful and then the third kind is the happiness that comes from letting be the happiness of release ah we're we not caught anymore and it's freeing and restful and there's a deepening that happens and we can practice this process of letting be, and it happens gradually through our practice. And we can cultivate it. As that happens, the happiness gradually increases. We're not needing anything. It's it's very it's very peaceful. There was um, a woman who sat a retreat with me, who was um, really in a in sort of Unha- a lot of unhappiness and suffering. And the whole retreat looked, it was, was, this was a meta retreat, looked really grim. And she was um, small and sort of looked very serious and so forth. And at the end of the re- and we'd been talking about releasing and letting go, and the impermanence of things, the impermanence of mind states. And in permanence, the Pali word is anicca, and we'll be chanting an anicca chant. So anyway, at the end of the retreat, we had a circle, and people were sharing their experiences, and she hadn't said a word. And at the end, everybody had shared. She got up, she went and stood in the middle of the circle, and she started singing. Metta is better than (laughs) dukkha. Come on, everybody, Anicca. <laughs> so this celebration of impermanence had led her to happiness. <laughs> but she had everybody singing, Metta is better than Dukkha. <laughs> she was transformed. <laughs> it was very funny. So I've always remembered that. That's at least 15 years ago. <laughs> but sort of that possibility of letting go of of what's happening and how the happiness comes from the release. Even if what we've let go into is, is suffering and pain and difficulty, there's happiness in that release. And as the Buddha said, whatever happiness is found in sensual pleasures, and whatever there is of heavenly bliss, That's the bliss of beautiful states. These are not worth one sixteenth part of the happiness that comes with craving's end, of the happiness that comes from letting go, of clinging on to things, even clinging on to happiness itself. And the Buddha said, if by giving up a lesser happiness one could experience greater happiness, a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. And I remind myself of that frequently, and sometimes it's hard, because the lesser is the bird in the hand. <laughs> um, one of the um, teachers, Tannicero, talks about, he has a, um, an article called, Trading Candy for Gold, um, Letting Go of the Lesser Happiness. The Buddha himself was always directly expressing that. He was talked about as being serene, calm, having that half-smile of ease and contentment. And he taught a lot with humor. He used humor in the local dialect, and he used similes that made people laugh at themselves and at the situations they got themselves into, like the story of the boulder. And once a king, Pesanadi, visited um, a grove where the monks were practicing and had been living. And he remarked, Here I see bhikkhus smiling, cheerful, their faculties fresh, living at ease, unruffled. He goes on to describe them. And it was clear that the depth of their, their happiness was due to their practice as well, he said, as to their congenial living. Um, And so that starts to naturally come from our practice, that we find more softness, more humor in our difficulties, and more happiness. A happiness that doesn't have to depend on external conditions. And the Buddha instructed the people, his disciples, to not only recognize present, and this is kind of useful, not only to recognize present moments of feeling, the feeling of happiness, but also to discern the conditionality of that feeling, to notice the conditions that were leading to it. So in other words, to be able to distinguish sensually based happiness from feelings that arise through the depth of practice from that kind of happiness. So, for example, as we practice um, and we become more calm, things can appear um, um, more intensely the way they are. So, for example, food might taste um, more wonderful, or simple things can appear really beautiful when you're in a very blissful state. I remember once sitting at, staring at my shoelaces as I was tying them, and I was completely in love with my shoelaces. That doesn't necessarily lead to wisdom. (laughs) It was pleasant and I was totally happy, but to discern, oh, what's actually going on here? And then there's the happiness that comes from generosity and open-heartedness, and even in being with a really deep grief there's a happiness that comes from that. And he was referring to those, the happiness that comes from a tranquil, calm mind and contentment, equanimity. To compare that with the sense pleasures that come from refined states of mind. So there's a difference there, and it's useful to see that. Just this step, just this breath, a very simple moment. Not conditioned by getting our sensual needs met. Because the happiness of a concentrated mind or a tranquil mind fades also. It it changes too. Those states are impermanent. And we can get attached to them. And so it's useful to see that that's conditioned. We want to keep going towards what the Buddha called the highest happiness. And Gil will will be expanding on that more in the following talks. Nibbana, freedom, is the highest happiness. The Buddha says, one who is happy gains concentration. One whose mind is filled with loving friendliness gains concentration very quickly. And then we move. We continue to keep moving with that. We don't stop there. We don't confuse these beautiful states of happiness for enlightenment itself. Sometimes it can feel really beautiful, and you're suffused with happiness and contentment. And it can feel very blissful, and you can think, I got it! This is it! Um, And it passes, and then you realize, oh, maybe I didn't. (laughs) Maybe there was an I that was trying to get something. And we see that we're attached to it. And it's not to judge that. Those states are very nourishing and healing. It's just not to hold on, to just allow them to come and go, and to see that the mind can become more flexible and more gentle, and to uh, allow um, state to allow the connection. It's a resting place for the heart and it's nourishing, and we can feel really connected to ourselves and to the world. So as I was saying, all happiness is conditioned until we experience awakening. And the tranquility and ease that arise out of the conditions and support meditation are really important and supportive. And so to cultivate those. Whilst we're here, it can be helpful to look at some of the ways we pursue happiness so that we can be honest with ourselves about how we're doing it. Just within a sitting to pay attention to desires during the day. What am I reaching for that I think is going to make me happy? What am I wanting? What do I need? It's so helpful just to notice that. What do I need to stop happening so I can be happy? Just to notice where it's conditional and not to judge it. Can this moment be enough without me needing something to stop happening or start happening? What do I require to be happy? What's stopping me from being happy? It's so useful to notice these things. Um, just a, a short story. Um, when my son was quite small, um, he gave me a lesson in this. It was around the time of Hanukkah and Christmas, and we were celebrating both. and so. Hanukkah came before Christmas, and so he was excited. And he woke up, in the, woke up early in the morning, and he came into bed with me, and he, I can't wait for Hanukkah. I can't wait for it to, to, you know, when is it, and so forth. So he was, can't wait for this happiness in the future. And so I said to him, well, what's this moment like right now? What does this moment feel like? He said, well, this moment is nice and warm. I'm bed, I'm cozy. It's a very nice moment. It's a very cuddly, nice, warm moment. And there's a few moments of silence as he settled into that. He was content. And they said, on the other hand, it would be an even nicer moment if someone would bring me breakfast. I'm really hungry. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) a very brief moment of being enough. And It's just we see how quickly the mind goes on to (laughs) what the next thing will be. So it's just with humor, noticing that. Ah, there goes the mind, wanting the next thing. We don't have to judge it, just to be aware of that movement of mind, and just relax back. And we're just releasing the hindrances. We're allowing them, whether it's desire or aversion, just to pass through without getting so reactive to them. And that's where it helps to tune into unpleasant and pleasant feeling tone, reminding, reminding us again of that. If we can pick up the pleasant and unpleasant before the about-to reactivity, it's so helpful. Um, we can notice the contraction of aversion or just those subtle changes in the body or not so subtle changes um, last week um I had come in from out of town, and my family um decided my um we they wanted to go to um an all you can eat Indian buffet because my adult now adult son likes so because he can get as much as his large <laughs> he can, can eat. And so we're standing there, and there's a very long line because this is, you know, that kind of restaurant. And I'm not really into this, and so I'm standing there, and I can feel the contractions in my body, and I'm sort of realizing, I'm suffering. What's going on? And so I kind of relaxed back, and then I noticed this grumpy mind going, o- going along. You know, because I can see the, the 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 thing of food. There's no paneer in the palak paneer. <laughs> the veggies look all mushy, and they'll probably all taste the same. <laughs> I can see this commentary going on, you know. And then I sort of noticed this, and I realize I don't have to do this. I could just relax back, and I could have a nice evening with my family. And I did. But if I hadn't picked up that, I would have continued being miserable. <laughs> with the mind going on doing that, and being unaware. So it's just picking up the unpleasant and letting it be, and not getting drawn into it. We can be with unpleasant, and we don't have to suffer about with it. Happiness can be there in the midst of that. Happiness can arise from knowing suffering, rather than from clinging. And some of you have talked about that. Rather than avoiding or substituting, just by being with and allowing the release, happiness can come. From being able to be with and allow, it can come. I can be with this. I was with um, some friends at a workshop quite a while ago. This was a Joanna Macy workshop. And the people were grieving the climate change and loss of species. So there was really deep grief in the room. And we were just allowing it and allowing the depth of the grief and allowing all the feelings and the anger and the hurt and the also everything just to move through. And then at the end of all this expression, there was just this soft, open connection and happiness in the room. And the possibility of a deeper happiness came from that connection and allowing and presence, being present with. And I I'm sort of I know I'm repeating myself, but I think we need to keep hearing it, because the challenges keep being here, to be with and to allow that process of mindfulness and not giving up to support us to calm, and to a deeper happiness. And the happiness that no matter what, there can be love, all the beautiful qualities. No matter what, there can be compassion. And the happiness that we know we have a path, that the Dharma is here to support us. There's a path, and we can follow it. And we just have to remember. And I find that so inspiring and that verified trust, faith, leads to happiness. We can connect with that. While we're here, we can open to happiness in lots of different ways, and we can explore that too. It's easy to also, just as to miss tranquility, it's easy to miss happiness. We can go right by it, we can rush past it. There's a lovely cartoon again from the my stress reduction teaching days of this man he's in a business suit and he's sort of going, What was that? What was that? And then underneath it says, Bob experiences a pleasant moment. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> so it's to really be there for the little moments of happiness. Not to think, but just really let them in, allow them to grow. And expand and be fully there and let them nourish us. If we start to get attached to it, we'll notice that. And often when we do that, they dissolve. And so just to really allow it, it can come from the body and mind and heart just coming together for a moment, from a moment of generosity, from kindness, from the simple beauty of things. So many places where we can experience happiness. We don't have to have a reason to be happy, to be anybody, or to do anything particular. It just arises out of being. It's a beautiful quality. I'll end with just this um, um, lovely experience that I had a year or so ago. I was on again on a retreat And it was the first maybe day or so of the retreat, and I'd been feeling a lot of trust in my practice. I was just sitting there feeling very open and just beauty. And so I happened to um, talk to um, the teacher that was there, who's a close and dear friend, and he said, what do you mean by beauty? What's beauty to you? So I went out on walking meditation, just sort of contemplating, well, what is it that I mean by that? And it was just the ordinariness of everything. And I was just filled with just so, just this delight and happy happiness at the ordinariness of everything. Everything is ordinary, the isness of everything. And then I thought, oh, I'm like that too. I'm ordinary. And I kept going around saying to myself, I'm ordinary. It's And just so happy to be ordinary, and the relief of not having to be something, anything. The ordinariness of just being. And there was just so much happiness in that, and contentment and ease. And so to reconnect with that is very freeing. Before we add any ideals or expectations or becomings, just ordinary. So Thich Nhat Hanh says, enjoy your happiness and offer it to everyone. And so here, in a silent retreat, that means offering it to every part of yourself. All the different structures that we have, that we forget about. Happiness completely internally. Let the whole all the different voices and characters, may they all be happy. And then as we're walking around, just have that sense of that possibility for everyone to find happiness, to have a sense of happiness in the room. And when you're feeling in a difficult place, to sense that possibility of being wished that, May I be happy in all ways. So may we all experience deep happiness.